at the end of the day, you're building for people and you have to really understand the people you're building for and what makes them unique and individual. In order to actually come up with good solutions, you really do need to do everything you can to understand the unique richness of the user base or the customer base that you're working for. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated, or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Behavioral science, the science of understanding why we do what we do, and how we might harness those insights to influence people to achieve specific goals. Drawing from psychology, economics, neuroscience, and other disciplines, behavioral science has been hailed as producing simple interventions, nudges, or hacks that can dramatically impact results. Ranging from increasing organ donor rates to 401k contributions, to getting people to stick to their exercise plans and even be better employees. But that's wildly overblown, argues my guest today, Jason Ria, CEO of Persona the leading executive assistant company. Jason is on a mission to share the truth about behavioral science. After all, he's a leading applied behavioral scientist, applied being the key word here. Educated and trained at Stanford, Jason cut his teeth on real business problems. He did that as co-founder and global head of behavioral sciences at Walmart after more than a decade starting and consulting Silicon Valley companies helping them apply behavioral science to address hard problems in technology. I've invited Jason to cut through the most egregious behavioral science BS and reflect on what has helped him stand out in his field. Jason, welcome to 97% Effective. Thanks for having me, Michael. So Jason, you shifted, you left Walmart a few years back to go start Persona. And when you did that, you really focused on getting the company on the ground. And so we didn't see as much of you on social media. No, there is a lot. You used to tweet a lot and I see you're back to doing that, <laughs> but what would be one interesting or important thing about you that we actually can't find out about you on the internet? Yeah. You know, in general, I would say that I'm a pretty open book. You know, I write about kind of most of my thoughts, feelings, opinions online, but I would say that one thing that I haven't talked very much about was that for most of my life, I actually thought I would be an artist. So that was my calling ever since I was a little kid. I was an avid painter all throughout elementary, middle, and high school. And I always assumed I would go to art school, become a fine arts painter, go down that whole path, you know, trying to get into galleries and sell my work. And so actually for a lot of my life, I wasn't that interested in science. I started getting interested in it maybe like later in elementary school, but 
for most of my life, I was most interested in creative pursuits and just really always imagined that that would be my life's work. And so it's still surprising to me that I went down the science and behavioral science in particular route. Was there something in particular that flipped that switch that sent you down neuroscience and behavioral science? Yeah, actually. So I think I've shared this story once before, but actually it was in, it would have been junior year of high school. I took a course. I went to an interesting high school where we actually got to choose our literature courses starting our junior year. And I chose this course on ancient Eastern thought. So we read a lot of Buddhist texts, a lot of texts from just different Eastern religions. And this was right around when there were all these fMRI studies being done on monks. And so there's this guy out of the University of Wisconsin who was doing fMRI brain scans on monks as they were meditating and talking about neuroplasticity and kind of really interesting, you know, brain scan differences between trained meditators and non-trained meditators. And it was when I encountered that material during the course that I just became obsessed. So I just became fascinated by neuroscience in particular. I was less interested in behavioral science as a whole. I was much more interested in just how does the brain work? What's going on up there? What's the chemistry involved? Like what's happening? You know, <laughs> like what are all these different brain regions? What are they responsible for? And so it was really in that, actually in a literature course that kind of got me interested in the brain sciences. And at that point, I was like, I have to study this stuff. Like, this is just, this is what I have to think about going forward. I just became obsessed. And, and you ended up at the, the epicenter there at Stanford and Silicon Valley, particularly in, in terms of applied behavioral science, looking at tech. In the introduction, I gave a, probably what was a, a long <laughs> description of behavioral science. It's a fairly wide field. Was that a fair representation or is there a clearer, simpler way of how we should think about what behavioral science is? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, behavioral science and applied behavioral science, I kind of see them as two different things. I spend most of my time thinking about applied behavioral science, right? Like how do we take behavioral science findings and apply them to problems that, you know, important problems that we're facing, um, you know, in the real world. Um, and so I always like to think about and talk about applied behavioral science as really the study and practice of how to get people to change their behavior, to get people to behave differently. Getting people to behave differently, and I yeah. guess that's what everyone is seeking in some fashion from, from businesses to governments to ourselves in some of those examples I gave. And, and you have really kind of called out in a lot of your posts and, and a post recently how the field has gotten overblown. So if you were to say kind of what is probably the biggest BS that everyone in the field ought to be aware of, what would you single, single out? There's this whole kind of strain of thought that was very influential, I'd say, in, in the online world and in the self-help world years ago um, around this whole idea of like life hacks and are just small changes that lead to dramatic life changes. And I would say that that, that way of thinking has, I think, really infected the behavioral sciences. Um, so there's all this talk about nudging um, and nudges and, oh, if you make this small change to your marketing or if you make this small change to your program or if you make this small change to your product, you're going to get this huge result in terms of people behaving way differently. In my career, I've rarely, if ever, seen small changes really lead to massive behavioral results. Um, 
in general, if people aren't performing a certain way with your app or your program or with whatever you're doing, in general, you need to rethink it completely and make huge changes. I've very rarely seen small changes lead to big results. And, you know, actually, this has really been, um, you know, I've been saying this since maybe 2012 or 13, but the research, I was just basing this off of what I was seeing with the work that I was doing with startups mm-hmm. and tech companies. Right. And I would say that in the last, you know, two, three, four years, the research has kind of caught up to to what, what I've been saying all along. And we just had this, um, this big uh, piece that came out of uh, UC Berkeley, I believe it was last year, where they got 126 randomized controlled trials from a from a, a nudge unit uh, here in the United States doing these sorts of small change, behavior change interventions. And what they found was that the average impact on the outcome variables that they, that they were trying to, to change was 1.4%. Whereas the academic literature they're basing these changes on predicted, and I believe it was an 8.7% uh, absolute change in the outcome variables. So you had the actual real-world interventions were one-sixth as powerful as the literature promised. Um, and so I think that that's, for example, I, for me, that is kind of the nail in the coffin around this whole um, this whole perspective of, oh, small changes are amazing and you can get big results. And I think that that's the most overblown thing. So, so if it, it's almost, if it's, if it sounds too good to be true, there is some little magical thing that you can insert and it's going to prove dramatic results. That is the, the sign to be aware of if you're, if you're out there kind of consuming behavioral science. Early in my career, when I first got started with all this stuff, I was kind of naive. I, I believed all the literature I read. I believed, you know, kind of what the papers I would read. And I just assumed that these effects, these sometimes very large effects that I'd read about would kind of play out in the real world. And I just saw time and time again that they don't. And, and I heard another piece that you you mentioned, and uh, it clearly sounds like you have been spending a lot of time, you know, as an executive or, or designing products. And that was, I'll use the, the kind of very crude version here, which is, uh, it sounds like you cannot buff a turd. So if you've got like a piece of crap to begin with, no intervention, layering, you know, useful piece of behavioral science even on it are going to make much of a difference. Is that is that another piece I heard? Yeah, Michael, you know, I really would agree with that. I think that behavioral scientists are often brought in after the fact to try and save just a bad product or a bad initiative. Behavioral science cannot cover up for just a poorly designed, poorly created product. At the end of the day, you know, it can, it can inform the strategy and the design of the product from the ground up. And it, I think it probably should. That's where I think behavioral science is most useful is when it's kind of really incorporated into the, um, the strategy, the design, the, 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 the very kind of construction of the product from the ground up. Um, and sometimes it can be used after the fact, after a product's been developed to come in and, you know, make some tweaks and kind of improve things, optimize things. But it's not, it's, if you've built something bad, it's never going to save the day. Right. And let's, so let's dive into that because we've addressed the, how it's overblown. Clearly, you still believe in a lot of the applications and where it can work. And you started to talk about where it's most useful. Um, I'd love to hear more about, you've been writing most recently 
how behavioral science, and you've been working for many years, particularly in your consulting, where behavioral science can help with innovation. And, and can you talk about that in terms of how it does enhance innovation or where, where we can practically use it? Yeah, so it's my belief, and you know, I've, I've kind of come to this conclusion you know, over many years, that um, really behavioral science should be at the table uh, from the very beginning stages of like the, the very beginning stages of like product creation or product strategy. So every business problem at the end of the day is a behavior problem, right? McDonald's, right? All of their business problems are behavior problems, right? People aren't coming in enough. People aren't, you know, coming in for lunch. People aren't purchasing enough. People don't have a McDonald's habit. Every um, Facebook, every meta uh, problem is a behavior problem. Oh, people aren't engaged enough. They're not sending enough messages. They're not posting enough. So I, th I see that that basically every single business problem is a behavior problem. And so you should probably have somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about behavior in at the table, sitting with you as you're coming up with your business strategy uh, to, to solve whatever issue, business issue it is that you're trying to solve. Yeah. And what does that look like? I, clearly at Persona, right, you are an applied behavioral scientist. And sure. so you're, you're bringing that into your meetings. You're the guy who does that. Where you've seen, perhaps at Walmart or other companies you've consulted, like what what is the the top companies who are, you know, applying behavioral science? Do they have a dedicated person? Is it educating the whole marketing team around some of the the basic principles? What what does that kind of look like? Best practices. You know, to be honest, like I, I don't think that this is done that that often in in the real world. In general, um, applied behavioral science is either has a research is, is, is either incorporated into companies in a research capacity or in one in this optimization nudging capacity. I see very little, very few behavioral science people kind of getting involved in product, product creation and service creation from like the very beginning stages. It just really doesn't happen. Right. If you like, you know, um, that's just not the structure of the field as it is today. But that's really what I've been um, calling for for a long time and, and where I think it's most useful. And that's why I loved working with startups is because when you're working with a startup, you know, you don't have all these layers of hierarchy. You don't have, um, you know, 50 or 100 stakeholders or whatever involved in every, in, in every project. It's you, the founding team and maybe a couple of other people, right? Sitting together at a table and figuring out what to do next, right? There's less red tape. Um, it's possible to make bigger changes. It's possible for you as a behavioral scientist to get involved in kind of all of the decisions and the strategy. And so I think that in the startup world is really the only place where you have this kind of behavioral strategic perspective being incorporated um, into like in the right way um, into like product design. Yeah. And at Persona, which you've built from the ground up and, and, and turned it into a, a leading recruiter of executive assistants, can you give us like a, something tangible that where the behavioral science is really driven, whether it's the product or how you've gone to market? Love to hear how you've applied it here as your, in your latest creation. I think the key thing that I've brought to Persona is like what I would call it like the behavioral scientific mindset, which is um, 
you know, I've been obsessed with kind of learning everything I can about people um, and kind of how we think and um, how we behave for a long time. And I've just brought that obsession to persona. And I've just, you know, every day, every week, I'm always asking like, okay, is there a new or a better way of like interviewing people? Is there a new or a better way of kind of understanding, um, you know, how creative a person is? Is there a newer or a better way of understanding, you know, if uh, uh, two individuals, like a client and an applicant will get along really well? How can I figure these things out? From the resume, is there anything more that I can kind of glean um, based on their kind of experience? Can I ask for different information with the resume in order to give me kind of a fuller picture? So it's just this constant process of like asking myself like every day and every week, you know, how can we make this better? How can I better predict, you know, who's going to be a good match or a good fit? And I see everything in these matching terms. I know that like a lot of recruiting or a lot of people in the recruiting world talk about it in terms of like, oh, like we recruit the best engineers or whatever it may be. Well, what does the best engineer mean? I, I mean, this idea of the best of like, oh, there's there's a number one person, then there's a number two person, then there's a number three person. It's kind of silly, right? Because if you're a Python engineer and your company, you know, codes in a different language, then the, you know, that like, okay, well, what does it mean then for somebody to be the best engineer, right? It's like there are different languages, there are different skill sets. At the end of the day, it's about matching. It's about matching people to the right uh, opportunities for them. And so yeah. at Persona, like we're just constantly trying to figure out, like optimize this matching problem and figure out how do we best match individuals based on their individual strengths, experiences, skills, talents, etc. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. And that matching, we probably don't have time to go into yeah. the, the methodology, which would be interesting, I think a total separate podcast. But I'm, just off the bat, is that methodology, are there people who invo are involved with that or is it very much get baked into algorithms and you're constantly feeding new parameters in there i think that one of the most interesting things for me kind of doing persona over the years has been that i've just gained a, a much greater appreciation for recruiters and just for the importance of just you know what would be considered a non-sexy non-technical tool which is just interviewing right and that mm -hmm. looking at a resume using a resume to come up with like questions or things that you want to talk about and then just bringing empathy and just curiosity with you into an interview. If you just have skilled interviewers that have that great empathy that are able to really just kind of dig deep in their conversations. I mean, that's just no, nothing's better than that. I think a lot of startups go through this process of they go out into the world saying, okay, you know, the world is it like, the way people are doing things today is suboptimal and doesn't make sense. And they go out trying to kind of change, revolutionize things or change things. And then a lot of these companies, when they evolve and grow and gain experience, they look a lot like the incumbent industry or the incumbent players than they ever expected to. Right. Um, and uh, I think that that's definitely been the case with us. It's like, I think I've really come to appreciate recruiting and just, you know, some of these more, of course, these time-tested traditional practices. Yeah, so we've been talking about behavioral science and what it brings to innovation 
as well as how you're using it. If we shift gears a little bit to changing habits, which is mm -hmm. a topic we brought back at the beginning, it's an area near and dear to me, you know, as, as an executive coach working with a lot of individuals, we are trying to sometimes help them build or change habits. Um, from, from your perspective, also having spent many years in the field, what is the key uh, to changing or developing habits? What has been overblown? perhaps also something that I've been struggling with um, over the last couple of years has been this question around, is it even possible to form habits for challenging effortful things? So, you know, a habit, you know, just technically is supposed to be this like, you know, kind of subconscious automatic kind of, you know, behavior, right. That is just cued by the environment where it's like, you know, waking up, mindlessly walking downstairs and, uh, you know, filling up, you know, pushing the coffee button, having the coffee created. And before you know it, you know, there's a mug of hot coffee in your hand. That's an easy behavior. But most people don't like don't want to form these like simple, easy behaviors as habits. People don't really like have trouble with simple, easy behaviors. People, what people want to do with habit formation is they want to automate uncomfortable things that they, that they don't like that they think would be good for them. Right. So right, people want exactly. to have the writing everyday habit or right. the running everyday or working out everyday habit, but all those things, you know, require actually quite a bit of conscious effort and willpower to like kind of push through. So it's like, you know, I don't like running. Um, so for me to go running, it would, you know, <laughs> It's it's an uncomfortable process. Um, I would have to use willpower to get through it. I'd have to push through it. It's effortful. Um, is that something I can really just kind of do subconsciously or automatically? I don't think so. These sorts of things that everybody wants to build a habit around, technically, I don't know if it's possible for these things to be truly habitual. You can create a routine around them. Somebody on LinkedIn the other day, I wrote an article that kind of talked about this and um, another behavioral scientist jumped in and said, you know, oh, like, you know, it's, I think that's an example of the difference between a habit and a routine. A routine is something that's like more conscious that you're doing, that you do frequently or every day, but it's not a habit. It's not this like automatic, you know, thing that your body just naturally emanates or naturally does, you know, with no prompting and no effort. So um, for me, this is the big question about habit formation is like, you know, is the main use case that everybody is trying to get from habits is, ha is a habit even the right tool? Mm. And this kind of goes to the habit, the quote unquote habit approach that I've used for many years, which is all about picking the right behavior for your goals. Mm. Yeah. Say more about that. Yeah. So what I mean by that is if you're like, Every goal has, you know, there, there are a thousand paths to every goal. If we start with the goal first, like what is my goal? And then we basically come up with a huge list of potential behaviors for that goal. One of those behaviors, one of those paths to achieving that outcome or that goal is going to be much more in line with my skills, my context, my situation my likes, my dislikes than the other behaviors. And so instead of starting with the behavior first and trying to do all these hacks and little tweaks in order to make that behavior um, happen, 
Instead, let's zoom out a little bit. Start with the goal, like what do I actually want to achieve? And then think of all the different ways we can achieve that goal. And then let's pick the behavior that actually um, would be easiest for you and that you would enjoy the most. And is this, Jason, like, is it, is it like playing to your strengths in a way? Exactly. Or is that the wrong way to be thinking about it? It's playing to your strengths because, as I mentioned before, um, if something's really challenging, if something actually is, is going to require a ton of effort from you and be really hard, you're probably not going to gain any automaticity, right? It's really never probably going to become even remotely habitual. So you have to play to your strengths. But you also want to find something that you enjoy. You want to find something that's fun for you. That's how I like to describe it. Like pick fun behaviors that are like not too hard for you that lead to the goals that you desire. And at the end of the day, that's your best chance of actually really forming something resembling a habit that will lead you to the outcomes that you desire. So so breaking those things down so you're making kind of this easier for you Mm -hmm. individuals may be different here so i'm hearing that there's is not so much a one size all here's the routine that everyone has to you know put the stuff out alarm goes off at a certain time here think about how you're a little bit programmed and to build the routine versus thinking about routine instead of habit that way yeah and you know that's like really been my whole kind of a drum i've been beating for a long time is that You know, psychology and the behavioral sciences, I think, have really been obsessed for a long time with, I guess you could call them like human universals or just kind of like, hey, cool, everybody's loss averse. Um, Everybody's, um, you know, here's this thing called priming that affects everyone or like, oh, you know, everybody, oh, here's six principles of persuasion, right? There's scarcity, you know, authority, et cetera. And oh, just use these. And like, these are like these like hacks or triggers that will basically affect. I mean, the implication with all these studies is that they'll affect everybody. Like not, maybe not equally, but like, oh, these are like universal persuaders or universal kind of influencers for for people in general. But I think, you know, the truth of the matter is that we all are very unique. We all have very different psychologies. Like somebody who, you know, like for example, um, I have a friend who's very anxious. He's much more um, sensitive to fear cues, like things like he's always looking out for danger in his environment, right? He's, you know, if he feels a sensation in his arm, he's worried that, you know, maybe he's, uh, you know, has a tumor or that there's, there's, there's a health issue there, right? So he has like what I'd consider hypochondria. The, th- the things that would kind of move him to action the things that do move him to action in his own life are very different than the things that move me to action. Right. Right. And so I think that when it comes to changing habits in our own lives um, or in, or in the lives of, you know, other people that we care about, it's the key thing is just really personalizing things and understanding them, understanding each person as an individual. Jason, before we kind of conclude, we've talked a lot about behavioral sciences and how you've seen it applied and applied it in, in different scenarios. To shift this a little and get personal, um, you know, part of the podcast here is around navigating and work and, and careers, and you've really had a spectacular career, and, the, and you moved a couple years back from the startup world, Silicon Valley, 
over to the giant, to, to Walmart, which <laughs> yeah. is a very different environment if we're talking about having to kind of potentially shift some of your, your routines. What made you successful there if you had to break down some of the things moving into a large company and bringing in a very new idea um, into a large organization? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say that if I think about it, I really think that like the two, there were like really two things that made me successful there. Number one was that I had a unique skill set, right? Like I wasn't really um, replaceable where I was one of, you know, two people at the company who had a deep background in applied behavioral science. So if anybody at the, at, you know, Walmart's a massive organization, if anybody at the company in the company was interested in an, in an applied behavior question, it's like, who do you go to? It's you go, go, you go to me or the other person who I co-founded the Walmart group with. So it was like, there were two of us in the entire company and you had to talk to one of us if you're interested in this stuff. And a lot of people, of course, are interested in this stuff just because, as I mentioned before, you know, everybody in business is in the business of changing behavior or trying to influence right. behavior. And so, you know, a lot of people at the company had behavioral questions or wanted to know, you know, get insight into these things. And basically, it's like, you know, I'm one of the only, you know, restaurants in town serving that dish, right? Right. So that really helped me. So I think I having a unique skill set or a unique kind of niche or body of knowledge just was critical for me. Right. Um, the other thing was um, our group, the behavioral science group, was uh, we, we had we had champions, and in particular, we had one champion who was like an EVP, mm -hmm. and um, you know he supported us and was was very um, just very enthusiastic about our work about the way that we thought about our research. And um, he just opened every door for us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just really, I'd say that the other thing that really made our group successful was just having support from the top, right? We had one of the 10 most influential people, in, you know, in the entire company, right, on our side and championing us. So I would say that at, at Walmart, it was really kind of, I'd say that I could attribute a lot of our success just to in the organization to having just really enthusiastic, wonderful supporters, one supporter in particular who was an EVP. Yeah. And then also just to the, we just had a very unique expertise and body of knowledge that people really wanted. So, yeah. And having that champion, was that already there or was that something you had to cultivate? It was already cult there. Yeah. In your mean, interview, um, <laughs> probably to even build the unit, there had to be some, yeah, so behind it. the whole group existed basically because this individual was interested in this area and wanted to basically support a group at the company that would do this. So I would say that in knowing what I know now, it's like I don't think I would ever join a large company without, you know, one of the top, you know, 10 people in the entire company kind of blessing me and supporting me on the way in. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's at, at a large company, if you want to do important, impactful work, I think you have to have an ally who's, right. you know, at the highest levels of the company who can really support you. Yeah. Important insights. Jason, our time here is coming to an end. Is there an, an important 
question. I know you've been talking a lot about persona. Yeah. You've been talking for many years about applied behavioral sciences, but anything that I haven't asked or is not being asked of you these days that you think is particularly important, you just want to address here at the end? The main thing to reiterate is that I think that just be skeptical of what you hear. Don't believe kind of all the behavioral science hype. Small changes generally don't lead to large results. And I would say that, you know, I think that the big thing that the field has really kind of missed is just like, at the end of the day, you're building for people and you have to really understand the people you're building for and what makes them unique and individual. And you have to bring this sense of, I mean, I talked about it in the context of interviewing earlier about kind of bringing in curiosity and empathy into kind of interviewing individuals and really understanding them. But the same thing goes to doing great applied behavioral science work, right? Like when I was at Walmart, I spent a lot of time in the stores talking with customers, talking with store associates, kind of really doing everything I could to understand the people that we were building for. I think that, you know, kind of the field has like missed out on that a bit. But in order to actually come up with good solutions, you really do need to do everything you can to understand the unique richness of the user base or the customer base that you're working for. And you need to, you know, go and talk to people and understand everything you can and really understand them as people, not as, you know, test subjects. So, yeah. So talking to people, clearly you have a lot of work that you publish on your website to kind of become familiar with behavioral science and what is useful in terms of being applied. Are there other ways that people can see your work or reach out to you? Yeah. So, you know, I have a website. It's thebehavioralscientist.com. Mm -hmm. You can go there. I have a contact form on the page, so you can email me through there asking any questions that you have. I write a newsletter kind of intermittently on LinkedIn and also through my own newsletter, uh, which you can sign up for at thebehavioralscientist.com. But yeah, those are the main ways that you can kind of reach me if you have further questions or just want to talk about anything related to applied behavioral science. Awesome. Jason Ria, CEO of Persona. Thank you so much for joining me today. Great. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.